I'm going to start calling annoying wrestling fans part of the patriarchy. Oh, yeah. You can do this gimmick? All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the patriarchy. So um, if you've ever used the term vanilla midget, you might be part of the patriarchy. If you called AEW a t-shirt company, you might be part of the patriarchy. You guys got any annoying wrestling fans? You don't have to put them in the stylings of Jeff Foxworthy if you don't want to. Oh, we don't? I feel like I'm required to consider yeah. I'm the bald Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> like, you're, you're putting me really on the fucking spot right here. Do a Jeff Foxworthy impression right away. Fuck. Wait, did you call yourself alt Jeff Foxworthy? Bald Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, <laughs> all, either way, either way. Oh, I like. I know I like old Jeff Foxworthy. Like that's that might be how I brand myself. That might be the that might be the first line of my bio when I rewrite it. Like, <laughs> sounds good. I are see are that. we in right now? I don't know. I, I feel like we're in right now. I feel like we're in the podcast. Are we in the podcast, Nicholas? Because all right, this is already uh, completely off the rails. Yeah, it's dumpster uh, fire. Uh -huh. Hi, uh, this is Tim Bell Pod, our little outlaw mud show podcast. I'm Nick Alexander, and I am joined, as always, in the Manning Cave by the Dean Malenko of wearing Jinkos, Micah J. Loving. Oh, wow, I got an intro and it was that. Okay, fuck. Whoa, <laughs> that's a good one. No, I like that. You got to keep that one. See, even in high school, I didn't sell out and do the Jinko thing. Most of my friends <sighs> did. I think I did the big old navy jeans, but I didn't go full Jinko. But did you, or did you not, wear the red Yankees cap backwards? I was more of a White Sox cap guy. You're missing the fucking reference. You're missing the absolute fucking oh, the reference. Fred Durst? Yes. Oh, fuck. Because I sure as fuck. You know what? I'm glad I missed a Fred Durst reference. Oh. <laughs> Not me, man. <laughs> I've I've rediscovered my love for Limp Biscuit. Oh wow! And sometimes you just gotta take a look around. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna do another lyric with you. All right. Well, rolling, rolling, rolling along. The, Fuck uh, the the third person. That's it. The third person. Like you've <laughs> no, given me no. the best intros. You've given me such good intros. I've turned them into t-shirt designs. Yeah, he, give, he, he gives on me side. one. You don't get one. That's I how don't it works. Know. No, wait, you get the best I'm, one. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and both paths were traveled by the weeblocidal, tenticidal, campingcidal, let the man scout hit the floor, Jake Manning. Oh, that's a good one. I, I, that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a little too many words. I have to pay 25 cents per letter on that yeah, one for the t-shirts, but uh, that, that's, that's not bad. That's not bad. All right. Today, we are talking about a true trailblazer, an important part of civil rights. He was the first African-American hill in the South. He is a football Hall of Famer, a wrestling Hall of Famer. He is the big cat, Ernie Ladd. As Ernie would say, they love to call me the N-word, and I love for them to spend that money to call me the N-word. Oh, and also, too, like uh, one of the first... Uh head bookers uh, african-american head bookers as well and a guy that influenced a lot of people I, we've we've brought him up on a couple of other episodes like brickhouse brown yep. and some other previous episodes he was very influential to a lot of people and 
as he would always say, come sit underneath a learning tree. Because <laughs> he was the size of a fucking tree. <laughs> he legit was. Ernie is a pretty old school guy who uh, a lot of new fans, they may not know that well. So how would you describe Ernie Ladd, his in-ring style, his promo abilities to some new Mark who has no clue who he is? Well, he was an intimidating force. And something that, that's fantastic about him is he, because of his, his background in NFL football, something I was going to probably discuss later, but I can bring it up right now. NFL football and AFL football did not pay a lot of money in the time that Ernie Ladd was playing. So sometimes football players would do professional wrestling in the offseason. Like if you look at some old territorial tapes, they'd be like, oh, Cleveland Brown player, so-and-so, so-and-so, Fred McGinty, you know, and he would be a job guy and he wouldn't be that good. So some of the, the NFL players that would show up, the, the promotion would just use the name value of the NFL team and the guy would team with somebody like Terry Funk or wherever, somebody good that can carry them through right. a match and use the celebrity of <clears throat> this NFL player wrestling. So a lot of those guys never really panned out. I mean, they'd only be in for a few months, so the promotion wouldn't, wouldn't want to invest in them. But you know, Ernie Ladd was basically a promoter's wet dream yeah. in that you, you, you had a guy who had NFL credibility, but also, too, was unbelievable on the microphone and could had an aptitude for for wrestling which a lot of those nfl players like you see some of their matches and it is clumsy where <laughs> where ernie ladd very smooth uh very just could just move in and out and move very well but also to the talking like some of those nfl players when they would cut promos it would be painful to watch <laughs> yeah. but ernie ladd i mean right up there with just about some of the best talkers in the seriously, business. seriously yeah could go could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with dusty Rhodes in his prime verbally that's what I would say uh, to describe Ernie that people don't know him. Just coming from a modern fan perspective, I would say just his promos. Holy shit. Go look at his promos and see how real he felt on the mic. He, it, it was one of those guys that, may, that cut through all the fake bullshit and you believed him. And also, too, like had a little, little chip on his shoulder. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got but, to, though, but for in being a, an Ernie Ladd. But in a good way, much like the way that NFL players are today, like your, your OBJs and other NFL players that, that kind of got an ego about them. He had a good chip on his shoulder. And like the shoot interview that we do to highspots.com, he's referring to himself in third per <laughs> yeah. person. Did like, it before The Rock. <laughs> did it before Deion Sanders. Yeah. So just kind of like give you an idea, kind of basically the 60s version of Deion Sanders, yep. but almost seven foot tall. <laughs> yep. So Ernest P. Werrell Ladd was born November 28th, 1938 in Rayville, Louisiana. On this day, this, this just kind of worked out. Davey O'Brien won the Heisman Trophy for TCU. So the only thing that fucking else happened on this day was more football stuff. Uh, no one needs to know this, but the dude had a pro career, retired, and then joined the FBI. So that seems like one of the coolest lives ever. Davey O'Brien? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, they, there's a college football award, uh, the Davey O'Brien Award. Oh, shit. It, so. he was, he was, I think he was only the fourth Heisman Trophy winner, so I'm sure... Yeah. There you well, go. I mean, Davey O'Brien Award is basically like, a, I think it's best offensive player, best defensive player, or it's a secondary Heisman or something. Gotcha. Like he must have been offensive because I think he was a quarterback. Okay. So, yeah, there I we mean, go. Best offensive player in the country. Huh. There we go. We just we just made up a college football award. <laughs> <laughs> when Ernie was just three weeks old, his family moved to Marshall, Texas, before landing in the segregated Orange, Texas, where Ernie grew up. 
Although Ernie came up in a poor family in the racist segregated South, he looked back at his time in Orange, Texas fondly. He attended Wallace High School, where he was a standout athlete in both basketball and football. And Ernie gives a lot of credit to his football coach, Willie Ray Smith, as well as his principal and classmates for creating a good, constructive environment to grow up in. And because the world is just so small, Willie Ray Smith was Bubba Smith's dad, who people might know who also played in the NFL and probably know from the Police Academy movies. <laughs> I was going to say, if you don't reference Police Academy. <laughs> or I... that amazing episode of Married with Children. I think it was like, yes. The, oh, it's uh, the best. The security guard and <laughs> yeah. Al Bundy. Oh, slow motion. Oh, slow baby. motion. Yeah. Lad would go on to Grambling State University on an athletic scholarship where he'd also find great success in football. Also, he was coached by Eddie Robinson. Hell yeah. One of the best college football coaches of all time. Most winningest of all time. Yeah, and and Grambling known for producing just amazing, tremendous talent. I mean, some of the best college football teams of all time, hands down. So Ernie had a very, very good pedigree in collegiate football and high school football all the way up until his NFL career. College is when he had his first knee surgery. That poor, poor man was having knee surgeries already in college. Not just like just just <laughs> knee surgery, but knee surgery like in the sixties. <laughs> I think true. they I think they did that with like did that with like stone hammers yeah, and, without a- anesthesia. Like they just gave you a, a, a twig to bite the down. Piece on. of wood and the whiskey. And yeah, yeah. You're, you're good. Yeah. My favorite part of a shoot interview was <laughs> when they asked him, because uh, Grambling was a segregated school, how do you think you would have fared against the white school? And he goes, what? What a stupid question. We would have <laughs> beat the shit out of them or something like that. He's like, like we would have killed them. He's like, a better question is how they would have fared against us. us. And I'm yeah. like, God <laughs> damn, I fucking love Ernie Ladd. <laughs> Especially since the, the guy doing the interviewing is my boss. I'm like, yeah, you yell at my boss, Ernie Ladd. <laughs> Ernie was good enough to make the leap to the pros, and in 1961, Ernie would enter the NFL draft, being drafted in the fourth round by the Bears, and he was also taken in the American Football League by the San Diego Chargers, and that's who he would end up signing with. Uh, Can an adult please explain this time period of football? I can. Please. Thank you, Jake. (laughs) Because there were the two competing leagues. Now... The NFL has had a long history, even even AFL has had a long history of treating their players like indentured servants, even to this day. The, the NFL draft used to be a ridiculous amount of rounds. I think I had like 12 rounds or 17 yeah, it went rounds. went off for four days. And basically all they were doing were just like picking people out and like, oh, we own the rights to this guy. Even if like, and especially in times when they would have like separate leagues like the USFL or the AFL, the NFL would be like, no, 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 we own the rights to him. So if he ever ends up in the NFL, the Chicago Bears would own the rights to Ernie Ladd at, at all moments in time. Gotcha. And the AFL, obviously, they were an upstart league, so they would also do the same. Like, it's it's more about I own the rights of this human being if he ever plays football in this particular league. Now, the AFL was known for owners having a lot more money and paying a lot better where the nfl Mm. was much more stingier so that was kind of the way that the afl gained a little bit of traction is they offered a lot more money to these collegiate players like i can't remember who joe namath got i'm sure joe namath got drafted in the nfl draft but not as high because he had already said that he wanted to play in the afl Mm. but somebody would have took his rights in case the afl ever closed down and they had to go to the nfl for example let's say the afl And the NFL merger doesn't happen. The AFL just falls apart and all these football players are out of work. Now, 
Ernie Ladd's rights belonged to the Chicago Bears, so he ended, would have ended up being a Chicago Bear after the AFL folded. And that's always kind of the theory behind that, much like the USFL and the issue of Jim Kelly. He was drafted by the Buffalo Bills, and he goes, oh, well, I'm not going to the NFL because I don't want to play in Buffalo because I'm a Miami guy. I like warm weather. And he got drafted by the Houston Gamblers. So he went and played the USFL in Houston, and then when that league folded, he's like, fuck now i have to play in buffalo because they own my rights right so, hmm. so ernie was six foot nine and over 300 pounds and you may hear that and think yeah that's a football player but ernie was one of the first dudes to be this side and basically revolutionized the defensive line ernie also he gave a lot of credit to the chargers for not being uh super racist he said <laughs> uh <laughs> A lot of teams in the NFL were still segregated, making black and white teammates stay at different hotels. But the Chargers were progressive, and you were roommates according to position. The defense roomed with the defense, the offense roomed with the offense, and the punters and kickers slept in the streets like the garbage they are. It's true. It's not a joke. It's true. Well, heck, I think the, the San Francisco kicker should be sleeping in the street right now after uh, <laughs> a couple monday night footballs ago so that wouldn't be a bad place for him to be <laughs> jake but, lost jake lost money is what we're saying no you lost money probably you <laughs> don't bet on the nfl anymore uh, well you should it's pretty fun <laughs> well uh, if you got any good hints uh, tell I, me after the I, I'll, I'll give you a good handicap on some people but these these players these african-american players that played during segregation they are just these tremendous badasses and we always herald the ones that are most successful but even just the ones that were normal players we don't know the names of they're just as much of heroes as the ones that we you know put on a pedestal and and had all this career stats and all the notoriety there's a lot of really great players that were just good serviceable players but also too had to deal with segregation and were able to contribute to their teams and we and we don't talk about i mean we're talking about Ernie Ladd we talk about Jim Brown we talk about all these these other players that that push that boundary further you know and push past it and broke through it but there's a lot of great players we don't we don't talk about and they're just badasses for dealing with segregation and being on an NFL team and deal and just being an athlete in that time like just dealing with all that and still being able to do your job correctly adequately and and to the best of its ability is just my hats off to you all the people that we don't talk about hell yeah so. Lad played in four AFL championship games helping the Chargers win the American Football League title in 63 Ernie was also an American Football League All-Star from 1962 through 65, which would lead to Ernie helping organize a walkout at the 65 All-Star game to protest racism. So the game was supposed to be in New Orleans that year, but when the black players got there, the city went full-blown Fox News anchor on them. Black players had trouble getting cabs, getting checked into their hotels, and even getting food. Ernie Ladd had a gun bolt on him. He was walking with Kansas City Chiefs DB Dave Grayson and his teammates Earl Faison and Dick Westmoreland, which sounds like a fake name. They got to Bourbon Street, and over the faint sound of racial slurs ricocheting off the tin roofs, they heard James Brown playing from a club. They thought, hey, that's black music. Should be cool if black people could go there. But uh, they got there. They got stopped by the doorman. They tried to get in. There was an argument. The doorman goes, I have a good, 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 good gun, yeehaw. But even with the gun pointed at him, Ernie was like, still like, I will fucking end you. <laughs> yeah. 
You understand? Um, I'm only lad. Only lad will take that gun away from you, break it off, and then stick it up your ass. But, and then only lads will go inside your club and wash only lads' hands. As Ernie lad would tell many wrestlers, I will slap you in the presence of your parents. After this confrontation, Ernie was like, fuck this, I'm not playing. And turns out, literally every other African-American player, uh, they agreed. Well, this is weird. <laughs> what? They, they organized a boycott. They chose Ernie to be uh, like kind of the talker to the press. And then they all just hopped on planes out of there. Then <laughs> this was I laughed at this. Uh, there was an article I read. It said uh, the the AFL decided to move the game to a more tolerant city. Two days later, the teams reassembled in Houston, Texas. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, they did have Warren Moon <laughs> three decades later, and sure. they were somewhat okay with it. And they let him have number one. Yeah, they were okay with him having number one. That, that's how tolerant they were that 30 years later, they were willing to have Warren Moon there. We can't overstate this This boycott it changed the world it showed black and white players were you know done with all the bullshit every sport had to like take notice and, and change and start treating their african-american players better ernie has a quote about it years later he said someone had to take a stand and stop players from being treated like second-class citizens we didn't do it for publicity we did it because of what was right and what was wrong and people give athletes a, a hard time sometimes mostly because they fuck up and do deplorable things if you listen to crime <laughs> and sports but at the same time too it's it's amazing how in a locker room and athletics and athletes there's such a democracy it's a situation of like we're going through the same exact thing you're an equal to me just because we're going through the same exact thing doesn't matter if you're white black latino even male, female, yeah. transgender, whatever, you it doesn't make a difference. If you're going through what I'm going through, and that's why I've always felt that pro wrestling has been very progressive. You look like someone like Pat Patterson. Nobody, even the 60s and 70s, nobody had a problem with him being gay because, like, no, he drew money, he's good, he's smart, he wrestles, he takes care of me in the ring, so I don't care what he does outside of this arena. And that's the same way with athletics, and and that and I always feel like it's a very unifying thing and very important to people's development in in becoming not more woke, but just understanding the world and and running into different peoples and inter interacting with people. It's a very leveling playing field when you're just getting your butt kicked yeah. on a Wednesday practice, knocking each other around with pads. You become friends with with somebody very fast, and it just wipes out whatever social, economic, racial, religious, uh, sexual, you know, beliefs or practices. Yeah, it's solidarity, man. Solidarity. Yep. Ernie would fight for the small things, too, which I found an article which made me laugh, but it shows what type of person Ernie was because he fought for what he thought was bullshit no matter what. This is a real quick article I'm going to read. The Tacoma New Tribune, February 3rd, 1966. Ernie Ladd mad, so he'll keep his goatee. Ernie Ladd is mad, but vows he won't work up the lather. Still unsigned and unshaven, Ladd said Wednesday he'll keep his goatee to defy a recently adopted AFL rule that requires its players to enter the games clean-shaven. It's known as the Ladd Amendment since the all-league defensive tackle was the only player last year to feature long chin whiskers. Ernie said, if I let them tell me how to appear in public, the next thing they'll be telling me is which hand to use when I open a restroom door. The constitutionality of the rule was questioned after it was approved, and Ernie aims to repeal it. They better have grounds, he said, adding that the league had not contacted him regarding the rule. 
The 6'9", 315-pound giant is in town for a wrestling match Friday night. He's billed as the giant cat, whiskers and all. So Ernie just fought for, you know, I just, I don't want to fucking shave. Fuck you too. Well, I, I don't think that was the exact words. I think it was like, Ernie Lad doesn't want to shave Ernie Lad's goatee. Pretty soon they're going to tell Ernie Lad that Ernie Lad can't use his right hand to walk into the bathroom as Ernie Lad needs to take a piss. <laughs> So after the 1965 season, the Chargers didn't want to pay Ernie what he thought he deserved, so he left to go play for the Houston Oilers, who are now present-day Tennessee Titans. Ooh. Ernie spent 66 playing for them before heading to the NFL's Kansas City territory to play for the Chiefs in 67, which would be the season right after the first Super Bowl with the Packers. With the Chiefs, Ernie linked back up with the old Grambling U teammate and future Hall of Famer Buck Buchanan. Both of them are in Grambling State's Hall of Fame, which will be the first Hall of Fame that we talk about with Ernie because he's in like 68 other Hall of Fames. He seriously is. I had a list and then I was like, fuck, it's just too much. That's right. Ernie Ladd is in the San Diego Chargers Hall of Fame. I am also in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. I'm also in the Ernie Ladd Hall of Fame. <laughs> Surprisingly, right. there are 45 people in that Hall of Fame. <laughs> All named Ernie Ladd. So how did one of the greatest defensive tackles of all time end up becoming one of the great big men in pro wrestling history? Ladd started wrestling in 1961 when he was challenged to attend a workout by the destroyer Dick Byer. Ernie said he wasn't going to go down there with those phony wrestlers. He'd hurt somebody. Dick said, well, come hurt somebody. Ernie went, did the workout, and he apparently got stretched to pieces. Actually, believe it or not, the destroyer Dick Byer, Eagle Scout as well. <laughs> so, just let you a little little piece of trivia wow. right there. Yeah. Slip that in there. I always like uh, reminding people. I needed that. a lot of guesses to be able to guess that trivia, and I never, <laughs> never would have got it. From there, they broke Ernie in and started training him. And some of the people Ernie credits for his training and his development as a wrestler, besides Dick Byer, Tiger Conway, Morris Siegel, Paul Bosch, Vince Sr., The Sheik, Sam Munchnik, Frank Tunney, and the biggest impact, Bill Watts and Pedro Martinez. While still playing in the NFL, Ernie would dabble in the territories during his offseason, spending the next few years working for World Wrestling Alliance in California, Southwest, which would later become World Class Brother, the AWA, the WWWF, he even won the NWA Texas heavyweight title, beating Fritz von Erich in 65, holding it for a few months before he dropped it back that April. I mean, if you go through Ernie's match listing, he starts around 61. In 1963, he has a NWA title shot at Luthez. Um, he's got a WWA title shot, multiple against Classy Freddie Blassie. He's teaming up with Giant Baba in 1965 in Long Beach, California. He's doing 60-minute draws at the Sportatorium with Killer Cox in 65. I mean immediately right into his career he was at the top of the top getting the big shots drawing the big money right away they were like yeah put him in there with everybody like i said at the top of the program the idea of you know being an afl player that's got a lot of cachet and you know the promoter's gonna salivate over that but it just turns out that ernie Lai was a fantastic wrestler like holy cow this guy actually has talent and ability at this as opposed to somebody we have to do a patchwork with <laughs> yeah. and put him in a tag match with people who are good that they're gonna make this a passable main event just rewinding back to him wrestling Fritz von Eric, can you imagine the handshake? Like these two sizable hands coming together to shake hands must have been a visual to see. <laughs> 
While playing for the Chiefs, Ernie sustained a knee injury, and while he said it didn't technically end his career, it left him on the sidelines pondering his future. It's also important to note that this is where Ernie Ladd injured his thumb permanently, forcing him to tape it every match, despite what true. some bitch-ass babyface tries to tell you. After the 68 season, Ernie took some time off to see which business he was going to make more money in. Wrestling won, so in 1969, Ernie made the leap to professional wrestling. In an interview with the New York Times, Ernie said his first year in wrestling full-time, he made $98,000, and after that, he never made less than hundred grand, which was a ton of money in the 60s. Yeah, that's insane. Now, having time to focus solely on wrestling, Ernie would use his dominating size, his sharp mic skills, to become one of the best and most hated hills in the world, and he was doing all of this as the first African-American hill, mostly wrestling in the South, where they were like, well, we were going to boo you anyway. Well, and also, too, he has this very interesting set of circumstances for the time and the place in the South because he is light-skinned. So he's not black enough for black people. He's definitely not white enough for white people. So he falls in this middle ground where everybody hates him. And that's something that he started to learn a little bit as he started to go along in professional wrestling. A lot of a lot of black people kind of liked him, but then somebody's like, no, you have to be a heel for everybody. Yeah. So he started, you know, turning the screws a certain way to ensure that he would be hated on both sides of the color barrier, which made him such a marketable drawing heel and then him being as big as he is he's so he's credible and the fact that he can talk and talk people in and and enrage people so much like i don't know if we're going to get to it or not but the discussion of an angle he did with chavo guerrero senior in la he basically he had he had the championship he was going to give chavo guerrero an opportunity on television to to win the belt from him and then chavo beat him on tv and then ernie's like where's the contract where's the contract <laughs> and people are like well you said and he goes Allah. Yeah, lied." that's what he just which flat is out says. which is such a great territorial heel thing <laughs> but just when he describes it again and said i just flat out lied like a lot of times the heel will be like well where's the contract that i had no such thing and they would just whatever but i, I haven't heard too many heels just get on tv and go well i lied yeah i'm a piece of shit exactly <laughs> like just ha- being a heel for everybody in in such a way and also too because it's territorial wrestling you can take from something or somebody you saw in a different territory i'm like okay well i saw this guy in portland do something i'm in florida here how about i do that here and see if that works and and, and just adapt things or like somebody's got a really good line he just kind of said in passing i feel like i can make this work over here i feel like i can make this a bigger thing in texas this guy just kind of said it on like a one-off or a promo for a town in florida and i like that line but i think it fits me a little bit better here in texas and what i got going on he was just a sponge for everything and he had all of the natural ability and gifts and then marquee value with him being a former football player like it was a perfect storm for him to make money in professional wrestling in 69 ernie would head up to big time wrestling to work with the likes of bobo brazil he'd work in nwa hollywood with travel senior and he'd even have some shots in wwf with gorilla monsoon Gorilla Monsoon's gear was so bad. (laughs) 
What do you mean? Like a bad, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't anything to even it was comment. A, it was a big guy, you know. He was gear. neutral. It was neutral. It was black pants with a black singlet top. Like you. It, do you want him doing viscera shit or something? Like, I, how could you say it's bad? It's neutral, if anything, at best. Now, I'll admit to you, it's not the most spectacular gear of all time, but it's at least neutral. He, he looked like a potato joined the mafia. I like that. That's a good gimmick. That's more of a comment on how he looks, and that's your prerogative. <laughs> I, I feel like Gorilla Monsoon was, was a very good-looking man, very dapper. In, in his later years, yeah. That's why I was so shocked. I was like, I remember him as this like classy, like kind of gentleman. and Because you see saw it. like from his breast up when he's sitting with Heenan. You didn't see his whole body. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. He didn't have like outstanding gear like Luthez, who had black boots and black trunks, which, by the way, Stone Cold Steve Austin also wore. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sorry. You should. <laughs> you apologize. You should stand up for it and just say, fuck Gorilla. <laughs> so, uh, Lad spent the bulk of the 70s bouncing around St. Louis, Amarillo with the Funks, big time wrestling, and would even do a run in New Japan in 74. One match that stood out. Look up the Ox Baker Ernie Lad riot on YouTube. 1974. So, basically, Ox Baker had the whole deal with the heart punch, as everyone knows. So, hot crowd. Ox pulls Ernie's arm back, punches him in the heart, crowd gets a little upset. Ernie does the cell where he's kind of like, as Cornette put it, he's quivering. It's almost like he's having a seizure, which is kind of a cool cell because it looks like his body's legitimately like breaking down and can't handle it. And it's kind of frozen like when you get knocked out and your, your limbs go stiff. And then Ox hits him again with the heart punch and the crowd starts going a little bit more crazy. And as they say, Lad was like, the natives are getting restless and Ox is just a little more heat, just a little more heat, just a little more heat. And he keeps hitting him with his heart punch. Where you see one chair flies in the fucking ring very violently, and then they can see that it's starting to break down, and all hell fucking breaks loose. The end of the clip, once they finally flee, watch for one fan who comes running full force, hitting Ox Baker in the back of the fucking head with a chair. And this is my favorite part of it. The context was that uh, in previous years, two guys had died after wrestling Ox Baker. One, I think, had a burst appendix, and another one had some, some problem with their heart. But it was shortly after wrestling Ox Baker... So they attributed it to his heart punch. So for the work narrative, everyone thought that the heart punch was legitimately fucking killing people. So when you watch this crowd going ballistic and trying to save Ernie Ladd, they legitimately thought that they were saving someone from murder. <laughs> and that is why they are losing their fucking mind trying to get in the ring and hitting Ox Baker in the back of the head with a steel chair. It's, it's some of the most amazing footage I've seen in a while. Go watch the shit. I feel like when we cover Ox Baker, all his feuds are mostly going to be him fist-fighting fans. <laughs> no <laughs> else. Lots of screaming and riots. And Kurt Russell and Escape from New York. Oh, yeah. So March 1st, 1976, Ernie Ladd would walk into Madison Square Garden to face Bruno San Martino during Bruno's second long run with the belt. This is a good marker for just how big Ernie was. was Bruno's 5'10", 260, one of the strongest men in the world, and Ernie just dwarfs him. The match ends with Ernie going for a top rope splash, which blew my mind, uh, but Bruno <laughs> yeah, moves right. and, and pins the stunned Ernie to keep his belt. In 1977, Ernie would have one of his biggest and best runs going down to Championship Wrestling of Florida, 
where he'd eventually feud with Dusty Rhodes for the CWF heavyweight title. There's really good footage of uh, some YouTube stuff of just the amount of cars lined up outside the building and everybody wanting to get in there and just the shots of outside. You don't see that much and just how many fucking people really wanted to see those two dudes go at it. It's some great footage. And Dusty Rhodes in Florida. Gosh, I, I don't know if you can think of anybody being any hotter. Like you, you think of Elvis <laughs> in, in his prime, but you just take like this geographic location and this particular guy, like Dusty Rhodes in Florida was so fucking over. I, I don't know if anybody's been that over in a particular region of the country. Uh, it, just unbelievable. And going toe to toe promo wise with Dusty Rhodes in his prime in yeah. Florida, just must have been such a, such a big deal. I, I can I can only imagine. Just I haven't seen too much footage of that, but I would love to just see the back and forth in the TV tapes of them going back and forth against each other. And um, Ernie was called a big deal in Florida. And one thing that you kind of had to do in this area of territorial wrestling, especially somebody like. Ernie, who is like very similar to Bruiser Brody, and that he's kind of an attraction that travels from territory to territory to territory, much like Andre the Giant. Like going in, being the big monster, attacking the big baby face, being the top heel, and then keeping enough heat in the town when you leave that when you come back, you're still credible as opposed to just scorching the earth and then you're a nothing leaving the territory. Ernie, at one time during Florida, I think he was on his way out. And the Briscoe brothers, who kind of helped run the territory, asked Ernie to to do a job for somebody. And Ernie's like, I'll do it, but it can't be on TV. (laughs) And then Ernie got in the ring, and he was wrestling, and he noticed a red light on the cameras and realized that they were recording it and realized the Briscoe brothers were going to fuck him over. So Ernie Ladd, when he got to the back, he went to his car, got a tire iron, and beat the shit out of the Briscoe brothers, who are... Jerry Briscoe and Jack Briscoe, known shooter, 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 shooter. 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 Like, <laughs> even to this day, like Bruce Pritchard will tell stories about a geriatric uh, Jerry Briscoe uh, shooting on people and, and beating the fuck out of them. Imagine Jerry Briscoe in his prime taking on Ernie Ladd with a tire iron. Supposedly, this, this may be wrestler locker room over-exaggeration. Supposedly, Ernie Ladd beat the Briscoe brothers up so bad that he... Threw him in the back of his car and then dropped him off the emergency room and then drove out of town. Yeah. <laughs> Never to be seen again from Florida. And while doing research for all this, I, there's so many different incarnations. One is he saw the uh, the video cameras and then he didn't even do the match. One is he's doing the match and then he notices like one in the upper deck appear to get the finish. And then one, uh, he drops him off in front of uh, Eddie Graham's house, who I think was the booker at the time. There's all types of urban legends about it. But uh, even uh, talk about like wrestling conventions and stuff like the Briscoes and Ernie will just laugh about it and hug and, you know, be friends about it. So there's definitely validity to it. In 1978, over in Watts territory, he'd hold the tag team titles with Stan Hansen, which sounds like a crazy unbeatable team, but they lost to Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giant. That's a pretty good one to take them from. I mean, that's the only way you could get the belts <laughs> off of them. Also, during this time, he lost a bunch of NWA title matches to Harley Race. And I was just curious what Jake thought about, because I, I saw some people's opinions on the possibility of Ernie Ladd carrying the NWA title at this time. What would it be for a black person to actually carry the title? And then one point that I thought was very fucking interesting is that a lot of people were saying that Ernie would have been too big and intimidating 
to travel around territories and for people to think that their small kind of territory hero champ had a legit shot at beating this fucking monster. Yeah, that is the dilemma. Like, you wouldn't want to put the NWA title on Bruiser Brody right. or Andre the Giant. Ernie's over without the title. Also, too, Ernie is an independent thinker. Ernie is solely about Ernie Ladd. Only Ernie Ladd is concerned with Ernie Ladd and Ernie Ladd's money. I am here to make Ernie Ladd money, not Dusty Rhodes money, not Holly Race money. I'm here to make Ernie Ladd money. Mr. TV announcer, and then I'll move on to a territory where Ernie Ladd will then be on top, making Ernie Ladd money at a different place. So the NWA, they would like somebody to kind of tow the NWA line where Ernie Ladd was towing the Ernie Ladd line. <laughs> so, like, like Harley, that's why Harley held it as, as long as he did, for as many times as he did, because he was an NWA guy. He he did what was right for the NWA and, and made decisions as such where Ernie Ladd definitely wouldn't have done that. He would have made Ernie Ladd decisions. And I thought one uh, point that Ernie brought up that I thought, thought was really good is he would get pissed off so much at guys seeing how many people were there. It's like, oh, it's a small house. I'm just going to give him a $5 match. But then Ernie made the point is if the, if the house was shitty and nobody was there, he would work twice as hard to impress people and to build that room. And he said that's how he built territories was just putting extra effort in when it was small. And then people would talk about his ass and then he would just build that way. Because when you spend money to see Ernie Ladd, I'm going to give you everything of Ernie Ladd. And then when you come back, you're going to pay money to see Ernie Ladd. And be like, is Ernie Ladd on the card? And then Ernie Ladd will come out and say, yes, Ernie Ladd is here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this for the rest of the podcast. No, it's fine. I'm just going to keep setting them up. <laughs> Ernie would finish up the 70s, getting a couple shots at Bob Backlund's title. He'd go to Crockett and also Georgia, facing the likes of Andre, Tony Atlas, Ricky Steamboat, and Rufus R. Jones. Right, Micah? Rufus R. Jones. It, it, what am I supposed to do here? This is the time where I say put some goddamn yeah, respect to Rufus R. Jones' name. Well, listen, whoever the fuck that is, there, listen, there it is. I, I I can't speak for the validity of Rufus R. Jones' in-ring ability, but don't you dare disrespect the name of Rufus R. Jones and his drawing ability. You can insult his in-ring ability as much as you want, but his drawing ability, especially in the Kansas City region, can't talk about. That. <laughs> and uh. Real quick, uh, the Bob Backlund stuff. If you want a really good side by side comparison of Bob Backlund promos versus Ernie Ladd dueling promos, it, I mean, it's like Bob is pure ambient and Ernie Ladd is me screaming at my mom to call the box office phone number right now so she can buy us tickets. For the love of God, I might die if I don't get tickets. The Bob Backlund match against Ernie Ladd's probably the best Ernie Ladd match I saw. I didn't get to watch his Antonio Inoki match. I fucking sucked. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and saying that Inoki gave Brody and Andre the Giant their best matches. That He probably gave Ernie his best match too. But please watch Bob Backlund dueling promos with Ernie Ladd because it's just night and fucking day and it's almost comical. In the 80s, Ernie would keep on with the territory loops, even going to all Japan. But it seemed like around here, Ladd finally found a home in Bill Watts Mid-South. Ernie set up shop and feuded with people like Paul Orndorff, Ray Candy, Magnum TA, and Junkyard Dog. He even faced our boy, Brickhouse motherfucking Brown. He also tried his hand in managing. He also did some booking, which would make Ernie Ladd the first black booker in a mainstream promotion. And this is, uh, Ernie Ladd is a part of this very weird history with Bill Watts and race. Right at the top, before we ever talk about it, you, you got to address that 
interview that Bill Watts did that got Hank Aaron so mad and basically ended up getting Bill Watts fired. Like the things that are said <laughs> in that interview are fucking deplorable and disgusting and nobody should ever fucking think that way. <laughs> And even if you fucking think that way, you should be fucking smart enough never to fucking say that aloud. If you think that, you'd be like, hey, there's something wrong with me. I'm a fucking asshole racist. But yet, yet, Ernie Ladd and Bill Watts are tremendous friends. And Bill Watts respects Ernie Ladd to the umph degree. And even so much, there's a great story where Ernie Ladd was coming back from Japan and he was main eventing a Superdome show. And it was it was one of the things the flight was getting in like right they're gonna cut it real close and and Bill didn't trust anybody else to pick up Ernie Ladd so Bill showed up and picked Ernie Ladd up at the airport to get him to the show one time and wanted to make sure everything was taken care care of Ernie and you know the Superdome was sold out he was a sold out show just because Ernie Ladd was on the card and he was working in main event and when Ernie Ladd got off the plane he was like. You know what, Bill? I've always wanted to get to a point in my career where Ernie Ladd would have a big old fat white man driving him around. <laughs> so instead of me getting a car, I want you to drive me to the show and put a little hat on, Bill. <laughs> and Bill's like, sure. <laughs> whatever. No, whatever. You're, uh, whatever makes you happy because you're my friend. And if this entertains you, me driving you to the show uh, with a little hat on, fine. And it just... The love and respect he had for, for Ernie Ladd. You can hear stories back and forth about how much he respected him. And, and there's always been this thing of Bill Watts, like, I need a, a black superstar. And there's always that thing like, well, why does it have to be a, a black superstar? You should you should invest in Hacksaw Jim Duggan because he's a superstar. You should invest in superstars no matter what their skin color is. And Bill Watts would always try and put black baby faces in his territory. But is that because they draw money or is it because he's trying to be progressive it? But then at the same time, too, representation does matter, but you're just doing it because of skin color to capitalize on the fact that most people that go to your wrestling shows are black. Then it's like, oh, I'm only interested in your money. I don't care about your skin color. But then at the same time, too, representation does matter. So it's this it's this weird muddled history of Bill Watts that it, it's tough to unpack. It's tough to discuss. It's weird and it's just all over the place and Ernie Ladd's a very large part of that and just to point to Bill Watts's friendship with Ernie Ladd and be like well he's not a racist because he's friends with him especially after that uh, that interview years ago that got you fired from WCW <laughs> so I guess this is a good time to bring up one of the weirdest things that I learned on the shoot interview is that Ernie Ladd has been friends with the Bush family since the 19 fucking 60s what the fuck he was even on uh the, the transition like late 90s 2000 team for bush jr like what i don't it's like mad libs of life it just doesn't make any fucking sense there there are <laughs> those older african-american gentlemen that have a distrust for the democratic party feel that they are used as pawns yeah and, and i understand that and i yeah. feel that like like i medgar ever's brother supported donald yeah it's fucking insane <laughs> Because there's a sense of like feeling that the government has let them down. They have, like I said, they've used them as pawns. And then you look at like some of the stuff that Clinton did with yeah. drug enforcement uh -huh. and put more blacks in jail yeah, than anybody yeah. else. But 
but then at the same time too, put more people in the White House, but didn't do anything. So that's it's just this weird muddled history. It's all fucked. Politics sucks. <laughs> it's all fucked. Politics fucking suck. And let's just move past this. And <laughs> unless you want to hear my diatribe about how Ernie Ladd was behind 9-11, which is another time, another place. <laughs> you too? Yeah. <laughs> Look up Ernie Ladd versus, in quotes, Mr. Wrestling 2 on YouTube. Ernie's beating the shit out of uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, rips the mask off, and oh my god, it's Paul Orndorff, and then he beats the shit out of him. That's a good kind of small studio wrestling moment. Watch uh, Ernie Ladd in street clothes versus Tom Jones, not that Tom Jones, in Mid-South. Uh, Ernie does, he's he did this a couple times. This was his uh, debut in uh, Mid-Atlantic. He would do this in other territories where he would be booked against a preliminary wrestler. He would come down in street clothes, basically, like, Ernie Ladd ain't going to do this. Ernie Ladd ain't going to wrestle this nobody. Ernie Ladd wants Harley Race and Andre the Giant, and then he would just shit all over the dude, and then the ref would get all talky, and then he would have to get in there and start doing the 10 count for the count out. Ernie would get in there, like, all right, I'll come in here. I'll shake his hand. He shakes the, the jobber's hand, beats the shit out of him, gets the one, two, three, and it was just basically Ernie arriving, looking like a baddest motherfucker, and being his amazing arrogant self also too i don't know where this will fit in I, I, we might want to put it here and if you want to take it out take it out but it kind of dovetails into ernie's like i said the, sit underneath the learning tree his it, the way he'd give back to other wrestlers and he would take an interest and develop careers and i i remember a convention where tony atlas had dinner with Ernie Ladd. It was it was like this this convention, and Ernie didn't do a lot of conventions at the time and autograph signings. But I just remember Tony Atlas sitting down and having dinner with Ernie Ladd in the, in the hotel restaurant, and just you could tell that Ernie Ladd is just holding court, even though like Tony Atlas, like his prime of career is way oh, way past, but he's still holding court and and checking in with Tony and making sure he's okay much like he did throughout his entire career and he always kept up with other wrestlers and always would take an invested interest in what they were doing how they're developing their character how they how are they making money what how they can be more valuable to the promotion how they can be valuable to themselves and their families and produce and all these things it was always just such a kind man and an overwatching force but uh i, I bring up tony atlas because tony atlas told me this amazing story about Ernie Ladd, which I wasn't going to share until I saw the shoot interview um, where Ernie did admit to some infidelities in his marriage. Now, Tony Atlas was telling me this story with uh, Randall Brown, who is the guy who was who made our wrestling rings and basically designed them, the High Spots Wrestling Ring. He was kind of the guy that came up and engineered how the High Spots rings would be built and designed, and he knew Ernie very well for a very long time. So Tony and Tony Atlas and Randall Brown were talking about Ernie Ladd, and he goes, uh, Tony Atlas was telling the story about this one time that him and Ernie Ladd were in some territory somewhere in some bar, and Tony knew this one girl. It was a good friend of his, and she's a very attractive woman. And uh, Ernie became smitten with this woman. And was like, well, I like this girl. And he's like, Tony, is this girl, what's her, what's her deal? And and Tony's like, oh, yeah, this, this girl's, she's a, she's a good girl. Or, or, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for you. So uh, Ernie, Ernie like went off with a girl. And then I think Tony was leaving that town that night. So Tony never figured out what happened. Like, like, would you hook up or what, what happened? So months later, Tony ran into that that girl and he goes, well, "What happened with my friend Ernie Ladd? Did you guys have a good time together?" And she's like, "Ugh." 
And Tony's like, what happened? And the girl was like, oh, he just kept going on and he was drinking and he kept going. Ah, this only lad's going to take you back to the hotel room, girl. Only lad is going to tear that pussy up, girl. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I'm going to get one more drink. I'm going to get another drink in me, girl, and I'm going to tear that pussy up. And they went up to the room and he's pouring himself a drink. And I go, oh, girl, after this one more drink, only lad's going to tear that pussy up. You're going to know what to do with you. You're not going to know what sex is anymore until only lad has sexual relations with you. I'm telling you, only lad is going to show you the time of your life girl and then tony was talking to randall and and tony goes uh what do you think happened randall what do you think happened after he had one more drink and randall goes motherfucker fell asleep <laughs> yeah, <I was> like, <laughs> and tony goes how'd you know it's the and, only way the story goes and and randall goes i've heard that story several times before <laughs> with different girls <laughs> so so maybe Here's a theory. Yeah. Maybe Ernie Ladd never stepped out on, on his wife. Maybe he just got drunk and passed out in random women's rooms and <laughs> thought he hooked up but never did. Then everybody like, look at Ernie taking that nice girl up into his room. But, and but, he gets that credit, but then he doesn't actually cheat. So it's uh, like, a, you know, that's the both worlds. But just just every time when I just I think Ernie Ladd, I just think, oh, Ernie Ladd's going to tear that pussy up, girl. I'm going to tear that pussy up, girl. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with this Ernie Ladd. Which, to our female fans, I am just relaying a story as it was told by Tony Atlas. So if you uh, are offended by that, just walk up to Tony Atlas and say that you'll put your feet on his face. And in no way does Jake think that when he's having sex in his head. He did. Oh, no, I'm totally thinking that. I'm totally got Ernie Ladd's voice in my head going, I'm going to tell that pussy up, girl. You'll never know what another man will feel like inside of you. And when Ernie Ladd is done with you, you'll be done forever. Done forever with all men of all time. You'll only be having sex with Ernie Ladd's. You'll have to check out the listing at the Ernie Ladd Hall of Fame on who you could have sex with, girl, because only Ernie Ladd can be the person you have sex with. And that's a motherfucking right, uh, scout's honor. <laughs> <laughs> all right two more things i want to touch on real quick everybody listen you go check out the king kong bundy ernie ladd promo it's on youtube it's ernie you know, i mean you can see him he's at the end of his rope but he cuts one of the best fucking promos and he's still fiery he's still just like hot molten lava oh man it gave me goosebumps i'm gonna jump in on the yeah, uh, king kong bundy thing because he didn't think king kong bundy uh was a very good wrestler so he'd always say things like, King Kong Bundy, you're stealing money. You're stealing money from the promoters. Telling people that you're a wrestler and you're a main event wrestler. You ain't no main event wrestler. You're stealing money, King Kong Bundy. You're terrible in the ring. Oh, uh, it's so good. Yeah, it's, Jake, it's good as Jake did. It's even better. One thing that stood out when I was going through match listings, this was in 1984. Ernie Ladd won this. It was a blindfold battle royal. Jake, have you ever heard of a blindfold battle royal? Motherfucker, I've been in a blindfold <laughs> battle royal. And guess what? Did the best spot of all time. I was tag team champions at this promotion, and we did a blindfold battle royal. How we, many people? Is like 20 or 10? Yeah, it was like 20. Jesus. And my and you could see in there, obviously, because it's, it's kind of gimmicked. Yeah. You can see through there. So like, we did this blindfold battle royal, and we did this thing... Me and my tag partner, we wrestled early in the night. We defended our tag team titles. And then we're in the battle royal, and we proceed to go in and beat each other up, <laughs> yeah, right. eliminate each other at the same time. And then, of course, when you got eliminated, you could take your mask off. So we both eliminate each other. We get in that side. We both take our mask off and realize that we fought each other, and we eliminated each yeah, other. That's pretty good. Crowd went crazy. 
This is this is the thought I had. If, in case you had done the blindfold battle royal, you do it at you go to the comic conventions. You have the shows there, right? And then you do that uh, all in cosplay, and then you get cosplay Daredevil to win the blindfold uh, battle royal, right? Motherfucker. That's good booking. That's good booking. Listen, I, the Deadpool mask that I wear for FSCW, I'm already fucking blind. So <laughs> I'm used bad? to be. Yeah, it's that bad. Like, I saw better in the blindfold battle royal and the sack that I had over him headed there than I do in the Deadpool mask, which is supposed to be a high visibility. Damn. By 1986, the wear and tear was building up on Ernie. His knee problems had come back. Uh, so Ernie Ladd retired from in ring competition out of the ring he would get into some wwf color commentator work even calling the 20-man battle royal at wrestlemania 2 and he called guest referee dick butkus he called him mike ditka can you believe that <laughs> jesus also too like he became kind of a consultant for wwf like it's one of the things that wwf wwe did over the years people who were main attractions big draws people of that nature like like like, like jim barnett people that had like decades of wrestling experience they would they would get paid to be a consultant so that was there's always a paycheck coming in and basically you were only ever required to just watch a little bit of a little bit of wrestling or watch some of the bigger shows and then somebody would call like hey ernie led what'd you think of wrestlemania right. 17 or wrestlemania 10 like what'd you think and you know he would give his opinions and what he thought and like i like this guy or this guy's a star and then kind of reaffirm what they already knew but maybe point something out that they weren't seeing that somebody with that type of experience would have, would have saw. So there there they were there were always those people that were considered consultants, quote unquote. Um, and Ernie Ladd was one of those people. Ernie was inducted into the WCW Hall of Fame in 94 and then the WWF Hall of Fame in 95 becoming the first person inducted into both halls and you can toss that on top of his 81 San Diego Chargers Hall of Fame. NWA Hall of Fame, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, AFL Hall of Fame, Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame. I'd imagine he won a Grammy, a James Beard Award, scored perfectly on his SATs, and even won the Westminster Dog Show despite being a big cat. And just to throw a shoot one in there, he's also in the Black College Football Hall of Fame. So there's, I think that makes it 47. <laughs> In 1999, Ernie did some acting on an episode of that 70s show called That Wrestling Show. He played Rocky Johnson's manager, who was The Rock. Eric comes over. He asks The Rock or Rocky Johnson for an autograph. Ernie comes over to say no, and he gets straight handled by Red Foreman, dumbass. As a retiree, Ernie did a lot of community outreach. He tried to help reform prisoners. He worked with kids, doing some coaching. During Hurricane Katrina, he was at the Astrodome ministering to families. And he basically just tried to use his name and fame to try and do some good in the world. Around late 2003, Ernie was sadly diagnosed with colon cancer. He was told he'd have three to six months to live. However, the Big Cat powered through for three more years before he passed away March 10th, 2007, at the age of 68. Final thoughts on the Big Cat, Ernie Ladd. I would just start off with, uh, also on Ernie's shoot interview, listen to the story of him getting saved when he really found God and Jesus and became religious. It is totally bonkers and a must listen. Throughout Ernie's career, he was great on the mic, as we've said, and I mean, he really was. Look up his fucking promos, man. He had so much vigor and just believability, and throughout all my research, I compiled the entire list of every 
nickname that Ernie Ladd gave for every single wrestler that he feuded with. So here we go. We're going to do this. Dirty Rhodes, Thundermouth Patterson, Andre the Dummy, Mr. Wrestling 2 was the Mass Vomit, Jay Strongbow was obviously the Drunken Indian or the Whiskey Drinker, and then my favorite, Mr. TV Announcer, Mr. Referee, Bruna Sammartina, Dominic DiNucci was the spaghetti eater. Rocky Johnson and Bobo Brazil, he went all the way with the Uncle Tom stuff. Loudmouth Mulligan. Backlund was Howdy Doody. Dick the Loser instead of Dick the Bruiser. Ivan Pusky. And finally, I don't even know this one, but uh, Charlie Cook was Old Twaddlefoot. Don't know what the fuck that means, <laughs> but it sounds bad. And uh, one of my favorite Ernie uh, promo bits was just, I don't earn respect, I take respect, and I demand respect. And to go out on how Ernie goes out on his shoot, God is good. That's Ernie Ladd. Before we started doing this podcast, not literally this episode, but like Ten Bell, Ernie wasn't someone I, I'd ever heard of. Uh, but I, I think I came across him during our Andre the Giant episodes, and I was immediately a huge fan forever. Like He's just so damn good. All his matches are fun. He could sell intensely. He could sell almost comedically. His offense looked good. He pushed the boundaries of what a big man could do, especially in the 70s. His leg drop was so fucking high. <laughs> like, yep. you hear Hulk Hogan's finish is a leg drop, whatever. But, like, Ernie's looked like it could end a match. It was, like, 10 feet in the air. He was a great talker. He had such a cool voice, and I think that helps a lot. I can't praise him enough for the stance he took in New Orleans. Uh, more people should bring that up when it, when you know, when you bring up Ernie Ladd. He was important to pro football, to pro wrestling and humanity. He left behind uh, a great legacy. I love Ernie Ladd. Micah brought up the the high spot shooting interview, and I've brought it up a, a couple of times on here as well. But the the story behind that is is kind of interesting. As I you know said before, Randall Brown, who was the guy who did, developed the high spots wrestling rings. Um, he was good friends with with Ernie Ladd, and we would always like tell Randall like, "Hey, next time you talk to Ernie, let him know that we we would like to do a shoot interview with him." And Michael at High Spots has always been very cognizant of like, "Hey, some of these guys aren't going to be around forever, and I want to get some of these guys on camera talking about their careers." And of course, Ernie would always like, "No, I don't have time for that. I've got things I have to do. I have Ernie Ladd things I have to do, or whatever." And he would always, you know, turn him down how Ernie Ladd would turn you down, you know? And then finally, one day, Ernie contacted Randall and said, if you want to do this interview, you better come to New Orleans in the next couple of weeks. And he just, out of the blue, it was like, I think in the late 2005. So Michael drove all the way down to New Orleans and sat down and talked with Ernie Ladd for a couple hours in a hotel room in New Orleans in late 2005. He got there set up a camera, recorded the interview. And as soon as the interview was done, like Ernie just went, <sighs> as, as Michael describes it, it was, it was like a big, like it took everything in his power. Like his health was not great at the time. And it just took all of the energy that he had inside of himself to just do this two hour long interview. Like it was, it was exhausting for him. And it was it was almost like Ernie knew that he was getting up in years and he knew he wanted to tell his story of his career with his words and, and have that out there into the world. And he knew that if he waited any longer, he probably wouldn't have the energy to do it as colorful as Ernie Ladd would like to do it. And 
him being very cognizant of how he wants to be remembered is probably why he took the stances that he did and and did the things that he did and gave back as much as he did and and give advice to people and like i said the, just the the thing of like come sit underneath the learning tree is is a phrase that when I, I i tell my students who i just i took a couple of them on a road trip with me recently and they just asked all these questions and and i you know answered every one of them no matter how much they made my eyes roll i still gave them as much respect and gave them <laughs> the proper answer uh to each one of their questions and answer that and i just keep thinking when, when i when i do things like that and I, and i do take the time to give back to younger wrestlers and give them advice there's always the thought of Ernie Ladd in the back of my mind that he would be doing this and he was looking out for younger talent and he was trying to make it so everybody could make a ton of money. That's what he wanted. He, he made sure he got his, but he wanted to make sure that you got yours. And that's something that a lot of guys in his time in his position didn't really do. And, you know, Andre the Giant, Bruiser Brody gets a lot of play. There's a lot of documentaries, a lot of pieces uh, about each one of those guys. And Ernie Ladd is one of those guys that came into territories and made a ton of money and then moved on to the next one and then made money for this guy and this guy and this guy. So as much play as those guys get, Ernie Ladd deserves equally as much. Thanks for listening to this episode. Big thank you to everyone donating to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash 10bellpod. We just wanted to take a second and give a big shout out to some of our newer Patreon subscribers. Well, Mr. Podcast Announcer, I want to give a big shout out to Adam Frazier, Hub Orr, Scott Siegel, and the History Creeps Podcast. It's a big thank you from Unilad and everybody involved in Ten Bell Pod. All right, find us at tenbellpod.com on the social medias at Ten Bell Pod. Mike is Jay Trotter, 27 on Twitter. Jake is Man Scout Manning on all the things. I'm Nicolessa, which I think I'm. That's what I'm going by in stand up now. No more Nick Alexander. I'm Nicolessa. It has been an existential crisis. Yeah, I've supported you in this, but I'm still like, I. I mean, you know, uh, you're my friend. <laughs> <laughs> There's just like 15 other Nick Alexanders in comedy. I got to do it. I got to do it. So Nicolessa. Yeah. All right. Uh, that has been Ernie Ladd's Ten Bell Pod salute. Is that a thing that we fight the patriarchy? Follow Ernie Ladd on all the social media platforms at Ernie Ladd, at Ernie Ladd, ErnieLadd.com, ErnieLadd.ErnieLadd as well, because I'm bigger than .com, my friend. My bubble did not burst in the 90s. I have been strong since U.S. Steel's been around at Ernie Ladd, at ErnieLadd.ErnieLadd. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Tim Bell Pod. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Tim Bell Pod. There you can find bonus content, t-shirts, Man Scout Manning DVDs. You can even tell us who to cover in a future episode. That's patreon.com slash Tim Bell Pod.